listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit BrockportFirstBaptist.org. I will be reading chapter 5. King Belshazzar made a great festival for a thousand of his lords, and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. Under the influence of the wine, Belshazzar commanded that they bring in the vessels of gold and silver that his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem, so that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the vessels of gold and silver that had been taken out of the temple the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank the wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and began writing on the plaster of the wall of the royal palace next to the lampstand. The king was watching the hand as it wrote. Then the king's face turned pale and his thoughts terrified him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king cried aloud to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans and the diviners. And the king said to the wise men of Babylon, whoever can read this writing and tell me its interpretation shall be clothed in purple, have a chain of gold around his neck and rank third in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king the interpretation. Then King Balthazar became greatly terrified, and his face turned pale, and his lords were perplexed. The queen, when she heard the discussion of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall. The queen said, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts terrify you or your face grow pale. There is a man in your kingdom who is endowed with a spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, he was found to have enlightenment, understanding, and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and diviners. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will give the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king said to Daniel, So you are Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah, I have heard of you that a spirit of the gods is in you and that enlightenment, understanding, and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and tell me its interpretation, but they were not able to give the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you are able to read the writing and tell me its interpretation, You shall be clothed in purple, have a chain of gold around your neck, and rank third in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered in the presence of the king, Let your gifts be for yourself, or give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king, 
and let him know the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar kingship, greatness, glory, and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. He killed those he wanted to kill, kept alive those he wanted to keep alive, honored those he wanted to honor, and degraded those he wanted to degrade. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he acted proudly, he was deposed from his kingly throne and his glory was stripped from him. He was driven from human society and his mind was made like that of an animal. His dwelling was with the wild asses. He was fed grass like oxen and his body was bathed with the dew of heaven until he learned that the Most High God has sovereignty over the kingdom of mortals and sets over it whomever he will. And you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this. You have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven. The vessels of his temple have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have been drinking wine from them. You have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose power is your very breath and to whom belong all your ways you have not honored. So from his presence the hand was sent and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Meany, meany, tekel, and parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Meany, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed in purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck and a proclamation was made concerning him that he should rank third in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks, Thanks be, be to, God. to God. And thank you for that reading. That was great. Oh, I love this story so much, but before we get into it, though, um, I, I want to kind of forecast a little bit what's coming up in the weeks ahead. I don't know uh, if you realize this. I, it feels like Christmas just happened, but we are two weeks away from the start of Lent, which just like, I can't believe it. This year's off to a quick start. Um, and we're going to be doing something a little bit different for Lent, that season of preparation and fasting that leads up to Holy Week um, and Easter. When we get to Lent in two weeks, we're going to pause... Uh, the book of Daniel, and we're going to be doing a teaching series focused on spiritual disciplines and practices. It's going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be a little different. Uh, each week, I'm hoping to have some things that uh, you can then take and try out throughout the week um, to really embody some of these practices. It's going to be, it's going to be a lot of fun, um, but that will be uh, starting in two weeks, and then we will jump back into Daniel and finish it up after Easter. The book of Daniel actually splits really nicely, right in half. Uh, the first six chapters of the book are all these, uh, these stories, these narratives that we've been in for the last five weeks. And then the last half of the book is all these trippy dreams and visions. And man, if you thought 
that Daniel's been weird so far, wait till we get to chapter 7. That's going to be fun. That's after Easter, though, so let's get into our story today. Daniel chapter 5, the writing on the wall. I want to start out by acknowledging the cultural impact of this story. This is um, a lesser-known story from the Bible, I think. Like, I remember this one from Sunday school as a kid, but I don't think this story is quite as famous as, like, Daniel in the lion's den, the fiery furnace, some of these other stories that we've covered. But there's a lot of common sayings in the English language that find their origin in this story. The writing on the wall is an obvious one, right? You know, like when the jig is up, things aren't going to work out, there's some kind of bad omen, we still say that you see the writing on the wall, that comes from this story. The idea of being weighed in the balance, that also comes from this story. And even the phrase, your days are numbered, comes from Daniel chapter 5. It is a super ominous story. The story is also set right on the eve of Babylon's fall to Persia. Uh, This was a historical event. It happened in 539 B.C. when the Persians and the Medes, two smaller kingdoms, rose up, um, teamed up really, and overthrew Babylon. And if you do the math on that, 539 B.C. puts this story roughly 60 years after the beginning of the book of Daniel. So we've got a bit of a time jump on our hands. But that also means that if Daniel was a young man when he was taken into exile, if he was maybe in his 20s, that puts him in his 80s by the time we get to this story. Now, I know we've got some uh, octogenarians in our congregation. A number of you are probably watching this service right now. You might think that your wildest days are behind you, not if you follow in the footsteps of Daniel. Just saying. It's been 60 years, there's a new ruler in Babylon, Belshazzar, who is actually the grandson of King Nebuchadnezzar. He's another historical figure. And this story begins with Belshazzar throwing this lavish party. It's a wild party. The king invites over a thousand noblemen along with their wives. There's concubines there, um, other guests. It was a real rager. Think like um, ancient Babylonian frat party. That's about what's happening here. The wine is flowing. People are getting drunk. Everybody's having a great time. But then, in his drunken state, Belshazzar orders for the gold and silver vessels of Jerusalem to be brought into the party. That would have been like the sacred dishes from the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, The temple that his predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar, destroyed. So we're talking like the cups, the utensils, the pitchers, things that would have been used by priests for generations for all sorts of like sacred rituals in the temple of God. The silverware, the fine china that pilgrims for centuries would have eaten from in God's presence. Belshazzar brings those sacred vessels into the banquet hall, fills them with wine, and uses them to offer toasts to his gods, the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. And God takes it personally. Out of nowhere, uh, this hand appears and starts writing on the wall, many, many tekel parson. The king freaks out like you do. I mean, I don't know if you've ever drank enough that you started seeing, you know, random appendages appear and just start writing things, but it would be pretty scary. 
So the king calls in all of his sorcerers, the magicians, the astrologers. This is a familiar trope now in the book of Daniel. We've seen this happen before, right? And of course, none of them can tell the king what this writing means. But then Belshazzar is reminded of Daniel, this old man who used to work for King Nebuchadnezzar. And so he summons Daniel to the party and offers him all sorts of gold and other gifts if he can interpret the writing on the wall. Now again, Daniel's like 80 years old at this point, and I imagine someone who has basically run out of craps to give at this point in the story. I mean, he is toward the end of his life, but he doesn't miss a beat. Daniel tells the king, keep your gold or give it to someone else. I don't want it, but I'll tell you what the writing means. Verse 23, and and keep in mind, Daniel is speaking to the king. You have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven. The vessels of God's temple have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have been drinking wine from them. You have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose power is your very breath, and to whom belong all your ways, you have not honored. So from God's presence, this hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed, mene, mene, tekel, and parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez or Parson, your kingdom is divided and given to the Means and the Persians. So it's bad news, right? <laughs> this is I shouldn't laugh. I'm sorry. Um, This is some Game of Thrones level stuff, though. I love this story. Now, this writing on the wall bit is a little confusing, right? Like, we're all probably a little lost. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. What does that mean? Why can nobody read it? What is going on here? All four of these words are units of measurement in Babylonian currency. So, like, today it'd be something like you know, dollar, dollar, shekel, and bullion, like something like that. That's, that's, that's what it says. But these words also sound like Hebrew words that have different meanings. Mene sounds like the Hebrew word for numbered. Tekel sounds like the word for weighed. And then parson sounds like the word for divided, but it also sounds a lot like the Babylonian word for Persians, Parson, Persian, you see that connection? God is getting punny with this particular prophecy of doom. So numbered, numbered, weighed, and divided. Your days are numbered. The days of your kingdom are numbered. You've been weighed in the scales and found wanting, and your kingdom is going to be divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. What a buzzkill. Fun little fact of history, Um, this actually happened. So uh, this prophecy came true. The the Medes and Persians really did team up and invade Babylon in 539 BC. They conquered the city, and they famously invaded at night 
after a festival when all the soldiers and guards and nobility were all drunk and hung over from the party. And then Belshazzar, who was a historical figure, really was killed in the invasion, which is kind of fascinating. I mean, here we have the book of Daniel. This book was some pretty out there stories. I mean, a lot of these stories have the flavor of like a tall tale almost, and yet here we have this story that lines up quite well with what we actually know from history. It's kind of cool. Now, if you're anything like me when you're reading this uh, story, you're thinking to yourself, what's the big deal with the dishes, right? Like, that's the question that's on my mind. Why is this such a big deal, this issue with bringing the vessels from the temple and using them to toast the Babylonian gods? It's not like those are real gods, right? Those are, the Babylonian gods aren't real. Um, Why is that the thing? Why is that the last straw for Daniel's God? I mean, the temple was destroyed 60 years ago at this point, and the king who destroyed it, Nebuchadnezzar, the guy who actually stole all these vessels and carried them off to Babylon, he got off light compared to this guy. So what's going on here? If you've been following along through this series, or if you're familiar at all with the book of Daniel, um, you might see a connection between this story and the very first story in Daniel, from Daniel chapter 1 where we meet Daniel and his friends, these these Jewish refugees who are taken forcibly to Babylon, forced to work in the king's service, but who refuse to dine at the king's table. Remember that story? Daniel and his friends adapted to Babylonian culture. They learned the language. They even take on new names, but they refuse to eat the meat or drink the wine of Babylon. They're not going to sit at the king's table. Now, 60 years later, the story comes full circle, and you've got a new king in Babylon who is serving meat and wine at his table using the stolen sacred vessels from the temple in Jerusalem, and God takes it personally. Notice that Daniel had to be summoned to this party. He wasn't there to begin with. He probably didn't even get an invite. I mean, he's long since forgotten at this point, but if he had been invited, I don't think he would have gone because Daniel doesn't eat at the king's table. This is a story about association. Will God allow God's sacred vessels to be wielded by an arrogant authoritarian who's drunk on his own power? Is God going to allow God's name to be associated with the gods of greed, war, and empire, gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stone? There's a word for what's happening at this party, and it's a word that we don't use very often anymore. Blasphemy. We are witnessing at this banquet a giant act of corporate blasphemy. When we talk about blasphemy in our culture, we're usually talking about swearing, right? Like taking God's name in vain, saying gosh darn it, but the real thing, right? Like that's what we usually mean by blasphemy. And while I don't recommend taking God's name in vain, there is a much more serious form of blasphemy, and it's what we see in this story. When God's name is associated, when God's holy vessels are associated with worldly powers 
that fly in the face of what God stands for. That is textbook blasphemy right there. That's what it means to take God's name in vain. The book of Daniel is an incredibly political book. I think it's important to acknowledge that up front. Like, the villains in this book are all kings. Uh, The heroes are government employees. This is a political book. It's a book that's grappling with the relationship between God's people and worldly power. Daniel follows in this long line from Scripture of holy figures who square off with evil kings. Think of uh, Moses and Pharaoh. Nathan and David, all the prophets of the Old Testament. Think of Esther and Xerxes, Jesus and Pontius Pilate. This is a common theme in Scripture. But this political angle makes Daniel a really uncomfortable book to read. I mean, religion and politics are like the two things you're not supposed to talk about in polite conversation, and yet here's a book that just thrusts them together. What we usually do with Daniel is we just spiritualize it all. We kind of tame it. We ignore the political stuff that's like right in front of our face, and we, we pretend that it's all about, you know, just standing for your faith in some vague way. You know, not actually doing anything that would get you into the kind of trouble that Daniel routinely finds himself in. If we do that, if we take that easy road of ignoring the political angle of this book, we are really going to miss out. Because the book of Daniel has some incredibly helpful things to say about how God's people should relate to worldly power. Cozying up with the powers that be has got to be one of the oldest uh, temptations the church. It goes all the way back to the temptation of Christ, when the devil shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and says, if you just follow me, I will give you all of that power, right? Um, Aligning religious authority with political power is also one of the oldest and most widely accepted heresies in the church. It's how we got all those wars over religion in Europe. Um, It's been a reality here in the United States since before our founding, and it continues to be a really pressing question for Christians today. There's been a lot of forms of this throughout history, but the most prominent one in America, in our context, at least since the 1980s, since, you know, the decade I was born in, the most prominent recent form of this in America has been the religious right the moral majority. I know some of you can remember that. Think of like folks like Pat Robertson, Jerry Falwell, Jim Dobson, Christian leaders, some of whom got their start preaching segregation in the 1950s. That's where Jerry Falwell started. But who then, once that became passe, aligned themselves with a certain brand of sort of like right-wing politics in the 80s. This intermingling of religious authority and political power, God's vessels, which is what we are as Christians, right? Each one of us is a little temple of the Holy Spirit, aligning ourselves with those in power and baptizing their policies. We usually frame this in terms of like a culture war, right? But the book of Daniel gives us 
much more biblical language. It's blasphemy. It is blasphemous for God's people to associate ourselves, to associate God with worldly power of any kind. That's blasphemy. It's a perversion of God's name, and God takes it personally. For 40 years, the religious right has been a major force in American politics, and what is the fruit? What has happened to religion in America in the last 40 years? Our churches are in decline. You could say our days are numbered. We're more divided than ever, both as a society and as a church. And there is an entire generation of young people, people age and younger, who have weighed the church in the balance. They've taken one look at the public witness of the church, and they want nothing to do with it. Numbered, numbered, weighed, and divided. That's where this has gotten us. And this is where I have to warn my friends on the left, too, because this can go both ways. Historically, this has gone both ways. It's an accident from history that this intermingling of faith and politics has been so confined to one side of the aisle for the last 40 years. It's not going to stay that way. Over the last number of weeks, I have seen article after article about an emerging religious left and a sense liberal Christianity that's supposedly going to rise up and do battle with the religious right. And I know we have people all over the political spectrum in this church. We have folks who are very comfortable with the religious right. We have folks who are very excited at the possibility of a religious left. But friends, this is not the way. The alternative to the religious right cannot be a religious left. We can't do that. The solution to having half the church aligned with one political party is not to align the other half with the other. We need a different way. That is only going to lead us more divided and our witness further compromised. But the good news is that the book of Daniel gives us that third way, a radical alternative to what we see so much of, too much of, in our world today. And it's the alternative of faithful opposition. Daniel embodies faithful opposition. He's faithful to the king. He serves the king well. He was a faithful citizen. He's excelled at the work God gave him to do to shape his community. Daniel sought the peace of his city and worked toward the common good of Babylon, but he knew where to draw the line. He refused to participate in idolatry. He refused to conflate God's power with worldly power, and he knew how to differentiate between God and the king. Daniel was kind to the king. He shows love and compassion to the king, but he also speaks truth to the king. He didn't paper over what was happening in his midst. He didn't ignore the violence, the opulence, the injustice. Daniel spoke truth to power, and he trusted God to watch over him no matter what happened. If the church in America wants to redeem itself, 
If Christians are going to have any hope of redeeming Christianity for a generation of Americans who want nothing to do with the church, we have to take up the faithful opposition we see in Daniel. Scripture calls us to faithful political engagement. Again, Daniel and Belshazzar, Jesus and Pilate, Esther and Xerxes, Moses and Pharaoh. We go on and on. So yeah, you should go to protests. You should run for public office. You should write your representatives. Be engaged in the work of shaping our society. But the goal isn't to enact our values into law. The goal isn't to pick the winning side of a partisan culture war or to gain power and protection and privilege for ourselves. The goal has to be to honor God by seeking the peace of the city in which God has placed us. To be a voice, voiceless. To pray for our leaders even as we call them to repentance. To speak truth, power, and oppose violence. To resist the idols of nationalism and xenophobia. And above all, to glorify God in everything we do. These sorts of values don't change based on who the king happens to be. They don't change based on which political party you belong to. These are universal Christian values that the church has proclaimed for centuries. These are biblical values that we are all called to. We are exiles in a foreign land. As Christians, citizens of God's kingdom, but ambassadors to this one. We are vessels of God's Spirit called to live in faithful opposition to worldly power, never in blind allegiance to it. Let's pray. God, you've called us to be faithful. You've adopted us as your children formed us as your people, empowered us to embody your love for the world. God, we repent of the ways we have contributed to the blaspheming of your name. We repent of the ways we have failed to honor you and instead sought assurances in worldly power. So God, we ask that you would renew our hearts, Renew our faithfulness and mold us to be your representatives in a world that desperately needs your love. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with us on Facebook at Brockport First Baptist on Twitter at BrockportFB, and on our website, BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. This has been a production of Brockport First Baptist.